Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. Thank you. Won't you pray with me for just a moment, please? Lord, we turn our hearts and our minds to your word now and ask that we might receive it with joy and live it with passion and that your spirit might do a work in our hearts today. We ask that in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. I get a chuckle of the story about the ventriloquist who was spending a week in a comedy club in upstate New York. And you know how ventriloquists do. They they have a little uh, dummy that sits on their lap and then they talk to the dummy and their lips don't move when the dummy talks. And so it's like they're having a conversation and typically the live human, the ventriloquist, is the straight man and the dummy gets to do all the punchlines and makes fun of people and all that. And so this ventriloquist was was in upstate New York having a, a good week at this comedy club. And one particular night, things seemed to be going just fine. The crowd was loving it. He was killing it. And then all of a sudden, he and the dummy got into these blonde jokes. You know what I'm talking about? The, the jokes that kind of make fun of female blondes and kind of make them seem like they're airheads or ditzy or not very smart. And So they were doing a bunch of these jokes. And the, you know, the dummy had all the punchlines. And people were laughing. But there was one blonde-headed woman in the crowd who wasn't laughing. And she got sick of it, and she stood up and interrupted the whole act, and she shouted up on the stage, and she said, I can't believe you're so insulting to blonde women. You'd think in a day and an age like we live in now, there would not be this making fun of people based on their hair color or their gender. I am shocked and appalled. And and the ventriloquist was kind of taken aback by this. He wasn't expecting it. And so he he quickly apologized. He said, ma'am, I... I am so sorry. We're just having fun up here. These are just jokes. I didn't mean to actually offend you. And the blonde looked at him and said, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to that little guy on your lap. (laughs) Okay, it's an old joke. but And I hope I didn't offend anybody with that. But I tell that joke for a point. And here's the point. Here's the point. There really is a point to it. When you make false assumptions or incorrect assumptions, you end up, leading to wrong conclusions. Incorrect assumptions lead to wrong conclusions. The the, the lady at the comedy club made an incorrect assumption about what ventriloquists do, and so then she led to a false conclusion. You know, this is uh, Bible Sunday, and we are, as you know, giving away Bible to third graders and thinking together about the, the Bible and the role it plays in our faith and in our lives, and I think now's a good time to talk a little bit about some of the false assumptions that people sometimes have about the Bible that lead them to wrong conclusions about what's in the Bible. You know, the Bible's kind of fallen on hard times these days. A lot of people don't read or study the Bible anymore. It seems like a a confusing book, a book that's sort of full of arcane rules from an ancient culture that we've struggled to understand today and... So we kind of leave the Bible alone. 
Mark Twain defines classic literature as a book that everybody talks about, but nobody actually reads. And in some ways, the Bible's become a classic in modern-day literature. Some people attack the Bible. Other people ignore the Bible. But as Christ followers, we're supposed to read and study the Bible and apply its truth to our lives so we can grow to become the people that God intended for us to be. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodists, used to say this. He says, God has shown us the way of salvation. He has put it in his book. Oh, give me that book at all costs. Give me that book. Methodists used to be known as the people of the book. And we still are. Because this Bible is the word of God to us. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it's meant to help us Grow strong in our faith. But when you make the wrong assumptions about the Bible, you will end up finding the Bible to be more confusing than it really is. And so what I want to do is share three false assumptions that people sometimes make about the Bible and correct it with the truth about the Bible. Here's the first false assumption people sometimes make. They think of the Bible as one book. It's a false assumption. The Bible is not one book. The truth is the Bible is a collection of books, 66 books in all. And they're divided into two sections. The Old Testament, which contains 39 books, and the New Testament, which contains 27 books. In fact, we we call the Bible the book because the, the Latin Bible gets translated as book, but actually in the original Latin, it was la biblia, which meant the books. It's, it's really, when you're reading the Bible, you're reading a whole collection of books, books written by dozens of different authors over a period of several thousand years. The Old Testament written primarily in the language of Hebrew, the New Testament primarily in the language of Greek and Aramaic in the Gospels. And while the Bible contains different types of literature. It's got history, it's got law code, it's got biography, it's got prophecy, it's got poetry. While it contains all different kinds of literature and it's written over a long period of time by different authors, there is one coherent message in the Bible. All of these books point to what God has done in Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, we call it the salvation history that we find in the Bible. starts in the book of Genesis. God creates everything including human beings, and gives us dominion over the earth. We're supposed to take care of the earth and manage it well and wisely and be fruitful and multiply. But human beings uh, turn away from God and choose to be sinful and selfish, and that brings pain and brokenness into our lives, into our relationships. God establishes law to help us try to live an orderly life. But over time, it becomes clear we can't keep the law perfectly on our own. And there's a separation that occurs between us and God because of our sinfulness and selfishness. Because God is holy and righteous. So when the time is right, God sends Jesus into the world, His only Son. And Jesus teaches us who God is, what God desires for us. And then Jesus goes to the cross and dies for our sins so we can all be forgiven. And He rises from the dead so we can have this gift of eternal life. So that even though our physical bodies still die because of the curse of sin, our eternal souls do not die. And then... The Holy Spirit comes and establishes the church and begins to to help people live together in a community of faith where we worship, grow, and serve together and bear witness to to God's glory and, and continue to learn about Jesus and try to live like Jesus and do the work Jesus called us to do. And then we're promised a day is coming when Jesus will come back. And there'll be a, a final day when Jesus makes all that is wrong, He'll make it right. And those who put their faith and trust in Jesus will be rewarded for that belief and that faith. 
And those who had rejected Jesus will come to the realization that they've run out of time. And that's the whole story of the Bible. And and yet, uh, if you don't understand that whole story of the Bible, and you don't understand there's different places in the Bible where there's different types of literature and different authors, you can get very confused. I like to think of it this way. In the Old Testament, God says, do you believe me when I tell you you need a Savior? And in the New Testament, God says, do you believe me when I tell you I have sent you a Savior? And if you begin to see the Old Testament and New Testament under that umbrella understanding that it's really all about Jesus, the Old Testament pointing to Jesus, the New Testament pointing to Jesus, then you begin to understand the overarching narrative of the Bible and you see that even though it's many books with different authors and different types of literature, it all tells one compelling story. It's really all about Jesus. So it's really important to remember that. Here's here's the second uh, false assumption people sometimes make about the Bible. The first false assumption is that they assume it's all one book. It's really a collection of books. But here's the second one. Because it's a collection of books written over thousands of years by different authors, some people make the false assumption that all parts of the Bible are equally applicable to our lives. But in reality, that's not true. Now, now hear me, hear me. All of the Bible is inspired by God. Can I get an amen on that? All, the, the entire Bible is inspired by God. It's God's Word. But not all parts of the Bible are equally applicable to our lives. I mean, there's a, there's a passage in the Bible that talks about what I should do if my ox gets loose from my field and goes into my neighbor's garden and eats his garden. That doesn't really apply. I don't have an ox. So it doesn't really apply to me today. There's a whole section in the Old Testament book of Leviticus that describes what you're supposed to do if there is mold or mildew on any of your garments or on your tents. They lived in tents back in those days. They didn't have houses. And so this passage goes into great lengths to how you control the mold and mildew, how you get rid of it. And then once you get rid of it, you're supposed to take the garment to the priest so the priest can inspect it and then declare whether it's clean or not. Or if it's in your tent, the priest has to go to your tent and look to make sure that that your your tent is now clean and the priest has to declare it clean. You think that applies today? I mean, I've got to say, I've been in ministry for 32 years. No one has ever brought me their shower curtain. They just haven't. See, the, there, are, there are things in the Bible that we read that really apply to the people that day, but don't necessarily apply to us today. There are passages in the Bible that tell men how they're supposed to trim their beard. There are passages in the Bible that say you should not have a tattoo anywhere on your body. There are passages in the Bible that teach you how to sacrifice animals at certain times and certain holidays of the year. And then there's lots of dietary laws in the Bible. You shouldn't eat pork. You shouldn't eat shellfish. No shrimp, no crab, no lobster. There's passages there in the Bible that say you shouldn't eat fruit from a tree that's been planted for less than four years. You shouldn't eat grapes that have fallen on the ground. And then some of the punishments we read about in the Bible. You know, the Bible tells us that those who violate the Sabbath, those who work on the Sabbath and dishonor the Sabbath, should be executed. The capital, capital punishment for working on the Sabbath day. There's a passage in the Bible that tells parents of teenagers that if your teenager is disrespectful or rebellious... You're supposed to take your teenager to the outskirts of town and let your teenager be stoned to death by the town elders. Can you believe it? the death penalty for a rebellious teenager? Actually, that's a, no, no, just kidding. <laughs> but you see my point. That, that shouldn't be up there. I don't know why that's up there. 
Uh, there are places in the Bible that you read what's going on and you, how do I live this out? You can't apply some of this stuff. I hear people say sometimes, well, you can't pick and choose what parts of the Bible you believe or what parts you don't believe. Well, okay, that's true. We, we can believe the entire Bible, but we better pick what parts we apply or don't apply. Otherwise, we'd be stoning our teenagers and I'd be spending all my time looking at shower curtains. And the menu at your favorite seafood restaurant would get very small and they'd only be serving brisket and beans up at Mission Barbecue, right? We don't want that. No, the truth of the matter is you've got to understand there, there are parts of the Bible we do apply to today and parts that we don't. A really fascinating book called A Year of Living Biblically by A.J. Jacobs. He talks about how he tries to spend an entire year following every command of the Bible literally. He dressed the, the way he took care of himself, hygiene, the way he treated his wife. Can I tell you that part didn't go so well? But, but the, it's fascinating when you read it, but it, it drives home this point that, yes, it's the Word of God, and yes, it's, it's truth, but you can't apply it all the same way today. I, I like to, to put it this way. Some parts of the Bible are descriptive. Meaning they describe how people honored God in their culture, in their time, how they lived, tried to live a holy life, pleasing to God. Uh, they're just describing how people tried to be faithful and how God wanted them to be faithful in their cultural and historical context. They're descriptive. For example, when I read in the book of Joshua that the Hebrews went into the town of Jericho and they killed every man, woman, child, and animal, everything that was breathing and living, wiped it all out, burned it all up as an offering to God. When I read that, I don't believe that God is suggesting this is how we should conduct war in 2017. I believe that this is describing how they conducted war back in 1250 B.C. That was, the, that was how they waged war. When critics claim that the Bible endorses genocide and slavery and the subjugation of women... They're, they're misunderstanding that there are parts of the Bible that are just descriptive. Because the Bible does not endorse any of those things. The Bible describes those things and how they were part of ancient life, ancient customs, and ancient practices. So some parts of the Bible are clearly descriptive, but other parts are prescriptive. Meaning, they don't just describe how it was then, they describe how it's supposed to be for all time. These are the eternal truths the divine principles, God's wisdom for our lives today just as much as they were uh, in previous cultures and in pre previous times. The Ten Commandments, for example. When you read the Ten Commandments, you get the sense that, that these are divine principles for our lives for all time. When you read a passage that says women should have their heads covered in church and if they don't, they're offending the Lord, you might think, well, that's probably more descriptive than prescriptive. But when you read a passage that says you should trust in the Lord your God and not let worry and anxiety overcome you, that you begin to see that's a, that's a that's a eternal principle. In fact, when you start reading the Bible with the help of the Holy Spirit and with a little common sense, you begin to be able to discern what's descriptive and what's prescriptive, what's just explaining how it was and what's commanding us to always live this way. Let's conduct a little experiment. We're going to put some Bible verses up on the screen and we're going to ask you to try to discern whether it's descriptive or prescriptive. You ready to play? 
All right, let's put the first verse up there. All right. If a man meets a virgin and seizes her and forces her to have relations with him, then the man who has raped her must pay the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife. You get it? If a man takes advantage of a woman, he now has to pay her father, and they become husband and wife. How many think that's descriptive? Right. Can we all agree that rape is a terrible thing? See, this was back in the day when women weren't considered people, they were considered property. And so doing this to a woman was simply defiling her father's property because a woman was a property of her father until he gave her away to marry. She didn't pick her husband. Her father gave her to a, a husband, and then he, she became the husband's property. That's, that's how it was in those days, right? That's descriptive. That's not suggesting this is how we do it today. Here, here's another passage. What does the Lord require of you? That you act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. How many think that's just descriptive? How many think that's prescriptive? Right. Yeah, this is an eternal principle. Clearly. All right, here's another one. When you gather for worship, greet one another with a holy kiss. How many think that is descriptive? How they did it in the early church. How many think that is prescriptive? We should always do it. Come on. I'm using New Testament as well as Old Testament passages because people sometimes make the mistake of thinking, oh, the Old Testament is all descriptive and the New Testament is all prescriptive. But no, no, you've got passages in the Old Testament that are prescriptive and you've got passages in the New Testament that are descriptive. This is a descriptive one. Here's another one. Be kind and compassionate toward one another, forgiving one another, just as God has forgiven you in Jesus Christ. How many think that is descriptive? How many think prescriptive? Yeah, see, you smart group. All right, here's another one. Almost done. Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and encourage one another. How many think that's descriptive? How about prescriptive? Yeah. Last one. Women should be silent in the church. It is not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive, just as the law says. I do not permit a woman to teach a man or have authority over men in the church. How many think that's descriptive? Prescriptive? Yeah, yeah. The truth of the matter is, Christians disagree on this one. And I put this one up on purpose. Because what you discover when you read the Bible, most of the time it's fairly easy to tell the descriptive from the prescriptive. But there are some passages where good Christians will disagree. Now here, in our church, we see this as descriptive. It's just describing how, you know... Women in that first century culture, how they were treated, and so they, they were considered subjugated to men, and so they weren't allowed to speak or have authority over men. Uh, we see that as descriptive. But there are churches and there are Christians who say, no, 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 this is, this is prescriptive. This is for all time. Uh, it was interesting. Some of you remember Pastor Beth Glass when she was here as our associate pastor. When Beth Glass first came here to Ebenezer, I had a, a man in our congregation come and say, I am leaving this church because you are compromising the word of God. You're allowing a woman to teach and speak in church and have authority over men. And I just can't be a part of a church that doesn't take God's word seriously. I said, OK, well, you never kiss me when we come to church. What's that about? <laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't say that. So he, he left and went to a, another church. Uh, but the truth is, we had we also had. 
folks who came to the church and resonated with Pastor Beth's ministry. In fact, when Pastor Beth uh, moved from Ebenezer to take a church of her own, we had several folks in the church that kind of gravitated to to be with her at her church because her ministry impacted their lives. Uh, so they would have seen this passage as as descriptive, not prescriptive. So so there are you got to be careful when you're doing the descriptive prescriptive for a couple of reasons. One, one reason is we don't want to. Just say, hey, I don't like a particular passage or a particular verse because it's a little too challenging for me. So I'll just say that's descriptive and I just won't, you know. Like when the Bible says we should be generous with the poor, well, I'm just going to assume that's descriptive. That's just describing what they should be in those days. doesn't mean I have to be generous with the poor today. Well, I would say, no, that's a prescriptive verse. The reality is 90 to 95% of the time, we agree, Christians agree on what's descriptive and what's prescriptive, but about 5 to 10% of the time, there will be some disagreements. What's kind of sad is that many times the, the Christian community is known more for what we argue about, that 5 to 10% we argue over, than the 95% that we agree upon, and that's unfortunate. But, but my whole point is this. There are parts of the Bible. Hey, it's all the Word of God. It's all inspired by God. But I like what Howard Hendricks, the the professor of Bible at Dallas Theological Seminary used to say, he said, the Bible is all equally inspired, but it's not all equally applicable. And as we read and study the Bible, we have to ask the Holy Spirit and use some common sense and try to discern what's descriptive and what's prescriptive. Can I get an amen on that? Because, boy, there's a lot of confusion and and people shy away from the Bible and make all kinds of bad accusations about the Bible because they don't understand this principle. Finally, here's the, here's the last false assumption people make about the Bible. It's just too big and too confusing. I can never really get to a place in my life where I could understand the Bible or enjoy reading and studying the Bible. I'm going to tell you that's a false assumption. And it leads to the wrong conclusion. That God doesn't want us to know His Word and love His Word and nourish ourselves on His Word. The American Bible Society uh, conducted a survey couple years ago and uh, found that for christians bible reading is at an all-time low since they were uh, have started keeping track only about 25 percent of practicing christians read the bible even once per week and when they're asked why they don't read the bible very often christians typically give one of two answers the most common answer is i don't have time to read my bible and the second most common answer is when i do make the time to read the bible i don't understand what i'm reading And I think those two are connected, don't you? I mean, if you make time to read the Bible and you start to read it, but you don't understand it, you're going to quit trying. Uh, And if you don't understand it, you you, you might not even try. So so I think they're connected. but, But what I want you to know is it doesn't have to be that way, especially today, because we have so many ways we can begin to read and study the Bible that we can learn the Bible. So here are a couple of suggestions for you if you if you find Bible reading to be a bit of a challenge. Uh. First of all, get a translation that you can understand. In your uh, bulletin notes, we've listed uh, some of the translations. Translations uh, can go literally word for word, or they can go thought for thought. And uh, their Bible scholars disagree on which is better or which is more accurate. People always ask me all the time, hey, uh, what's the best Bible translation? I always say this, whichever one you will read, right? <laughs> Find one that's readable. Now, for those of you who love the King James Version, that's great. Uh, some people kind of feel like it has to be the King James Version with all of these and thous. Uh, but other people say, man, I, I, I don't want to read Shakespearean English. I don't understand that stuff. Uh, 
there's nothing, I know I'm going to offend some people here probably, but there's nothing overly sacred about the King James Version. It, it was just one of the earlier versions. There are other uh, versions of the Bible and translations of the Bible that are much more readable and much more helpful. If, if you really like the King James, but you find it's very hard to understand, get the New King James Version. It keeps all the these and thous, but it changes the sentence structure so it's easier to understand. But there are lots of different types. Uh, uh, a translation I sometimes uh, refer people to, uh, or a version, is the, the New Living Translation. Very, very easy to understand, modern. Uh, the New Living Translation. And get, and get a Bible that's a study Bible. And uh, see, a study Bible will have notes in it. Like, it'll introduce each book of the Bible and explain who the author is, what time they wrote it, and what was going on at, at, at that time, and what the issues are that they're writing about. Really helps you better understand what you're reading. And then, as you read through in the study Bibles, they have footnotes at the bottom where you come across a, a troubling passage you don't understand. A lot of times they'll explain it. I, I really like the, the Life Application Bible. It's one of the study Bibles you can get. If you get the Life Application Bible in the New Living Translation, if you, if you struggle with the Bible, I bet you'll find that to be very helpful. Another thing you can do is get a book about the Bible. I recommend this book to people all the time. It's called The Bible for Dummies. Don't let the title fool you. It's really, really good. And the authors are uh, Bible scholars who know what they're talking about, and it's full of charts and graphs and, and fun pictures and, and funny cartoons. It's, it's, it's really good. So uh, that would be... A, sometimes learning about the Bible helps you better understand the Bible. If you like electronic versions of the Bible, get the version app for your phone or your iPad. Uh, the version app, you can... You can browse through all kinds of translations, and, and there, there are study helps in that as well. So, so there are lots of ways we can make the Bible more accessible. We have a disciple Bible study class here every fall. It's 32 weeks. It goes from September till May. It takes a little break for Christmas. And it's a, it's a really good introduction to the Bible. You take disciple Bible study, by the time you're done, you have a pretty good idea what the Bible's all about, and you understand it much better. You know... Uh, Charles Duhigg, in his book, The The Power of Habits, talks about what he calls keystone habits. Keystone habits are habits you embed in your life that then have a spillover effect in other areas of your life. In fact, early in his book, Duhigg uh, talks about a woman named Karen who, uh, when researchers uh, met her, she was a a marathon runner in tip-top shape. She had an MBA. She had a great job. Uh, She had a fabulous marriage. But just a few years earlier, she was over 100 pounds overweight. She was a chain smoker. She couldn't hold a job. And uh, she spent most of her time sitting on the couch eating junk food, watching TV. And when they started looking at what happened to her, how she transformed her entire life, she said it all started when she made a commitment to walk 15 minutes a day. And she said, I started walking 15 minutes a day, every day. And once I got that habit, then I stretched it to 30 minutes. And then before long, I was running. And when I started running, I had to give up smoking. And then I started to, to eat healthier. And then I didn't have time to watch TV anymore because I, I decided to go back to school and get my master's degree. And then uh, I was running. I was taking care of myself. I had a, was going back to school. Then I finally got a good job. Uh, then I met, the, uh, met someone and fell in love, and we got married. She said, but it all started with this one habit of taking a 15-minute walk every day. Duhigg describes that as a keystone habit. My prayer for you and for me and for all Christians is that the Bible would become for us, reading the Bible would become for us a keystone habit for our life. 
That if even if it's only 15 minutes a day or 15 minutes every other day or whatever, stretch it to 30 minutes if you can, that it would be, it would become a, a habit ingrained in our life that then has a spillover effect in our marriages, our finances, our attitude, every other area of our life. You know, the Bible tells us that we're to train ourselves for godliness. It doesn't say try to be godly. It says train to be godly. That requires intentionality and planning and discipline. In today's scripture, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy. He says, look, all scripture is inspired and is profitable for teaching and correction and for training in righteousness. This Bible is one of the training tools that God gives us to have the life He wants us to have. And I promise you this, if you'll get into the Word of God, God's Word will start to get into you and you'll begin to see the Holy Spirit using the Word of God to make changes, positive changes in your life. When we commit ourselves to spiritual training and we let the Bible be for us, what God wants the Bible to be for us, it really does become a good book. And God uses it to do good things in us, to us, and through us.